0: This is R.J. Rushtuni, Easy Chair number 329, December 31, 1994. Today, Mark Rushtuni, Colonel Donor, John Upton, and myself will discuss, first of all, Christian charity. Now, this is a far more important subject than most people are aware of today, because the modern church is decadent. It has forsaken, to a large extent, the faith of our fathers, and even more, the practice of our fathers. Today, the gospel of the church is uh, sin and salvation, which is a partial gospel, The fact of sin is a fact that describes all men. The Lord comes with the gift of salvation. But the third aspect is forgotten. Service. People assume that salvation is the be-all and end-all of God's purpose. But But God's purpose is the kingdom of God. Our service to him, we are as the old expression has it, saved to serve. It's sin, salvation, service. These are the three focal points of what the Bible has to say. Well, in the early church, we read that in Acts 6, because there were too many people in need, there were too many for the apostles to feed, to take care of, and so deacons were appointed. Now, the deacons were very much in line with the work of the Levites of the Old Testament, and their functions were very similar. They included evangelism, but they also meant the day-by-day care of the sick, the homeless, the poor, the needy, and so on. The early church very quickly extended this kind of ministry to the widows, uh, to elderly people who were homeless, to children, to Christian education, to a variety of things such as care of the sick, to ransoming the captives because as Rome began to weaken, piracy became very prevalent. So there was no area to which the early church did not minister. In fact, we know from the records of the persecutions that at times the main target of the Roman authorities was the deacon because the diaconate was making such a tremendous impression on the pagans, on the heathen, the Romans. It was demonstrating that these Christians indeed mean business by their faith. They care for one another. And not only that, when they can, they care for our own people, the Romans said. They love our people better than we do ourselves. Well, they also created, as 1 Corinthians 6 tells us, courts of justice to adjudicate cases. Under Calvin, a great revival of this kind of diaconate occurred. In fact, Calvin had two offerings at every service, one for the work of the church as far as the ministry and its missions, were concerned, and the other the work of the diaconate. Calvin, as I pointed out June 1994 in my article, The Unknown John Calvin, held that the true church could be identified by two marks, the faithful preaching of the word and the care of the needs of the people. Every Sunday, Calvin had two offerings. The second offering, just before the benediction, was for the work of the deacons. And because he knew a lot of people would hesitate to give twice and would pretend they were uh, in deep prayer as the (laughs) closing hymn was being sung, he'd have the deacons go outside with their baskets and stick it in front of the noses of these people to remind them they were to give. Calvin's work was imitated by a great man of the day, a Catholic bishop, St. Charles now, Borromeo. And you still have the societies of Charles Borromeo going on. But the Calvinists tended to forget what the early church and Calvin had done. This is why there will be no true Christian revival until we return to this kind of responsibility. Now, the church at times has done it. In the first half of the last century, the great Dr. Chalmers, in Glasgow, the Church of Scotland, did a great deal to revive this type of ministry and took care of the poor in the poor area of Glasgow where he served. A particularly great figure in this respect was General William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. Now, this is a very great concern to us because this is very important to the life of Chalcedon. We believe in faith and works, theology and action, head and hands in unison, working to serve God. And we have here today, of course, our man, John, sent from God, Upton, who has organized and carried on a great deal of work for us, and we will announce some further areas of work in 1995. And we have Colonel Donor, who left politics because he realized there was no salvation through politics and has engaged in Christian charitable action all over the world on a major scale. I'll leave it for him in a few minutes to tell us more about it. Before we get to Colonel, Mark, would you like to make some comments? Well, I think it's important to distinguish
1: between humanitarianism and Christian charity humanitarianism assumes that man there's a good in man that we must recognize and that we must we help man because of something innate in man that deserves to be helped and that because we need to find the good in ourselves by by helping others to see the good in themselves and that humanitarianism leads naturally to statist Welfare mentalities. Because if there's something noble in man, or if there's something noble in ourselves that we have to find by giving to others, then naturally the state, because it's the highest agency of man on earth, has a role in aid to individuals. Christian charity, on the other hand, looks at what God gave to us and says we need to look at others with a gracious, giving concern to show them the love of God. And as God gave of himself and God gave his son to save us, we can show the love of God to others by our caring and giving spirit to others. And it's, and of course it follows. For instance, when Christ washed the feet of disciples, he showed them that they have to be giving, they have to serve others, and they show the love of God. And the giving that, that Christ gave to them by their giving and serving attitude towards others.
2: There's no way I'm ro- washing donors' feet, though. Let's get that straight right now.
3: <laughs> but it's your attitude, John. You didn't even bring soap along. You know, it's, you're negative from the beginning. Um, what I want to say to Mark's comment is Mark, that is a great insight, which I hadn't, uh, one of the many things I hadn't ever thought about before. But what you're saying gets right back to uh, uh, the, what's so popular with liberal, uh, secular, humanist circles today is uh, um, the rights of man, or even our constitution, the inalienable rights of man. Uh, you know, we have this uh, just because we're men. And it seems to me, what in listening to you, what I got is that. Um, therefore, charity becomes actually a right. And that's what the government now, uh, in other words, we have to do these things for people. And if we don't do, if we don't meet somebody's every need, uh, then they become victims uh, because they have an inalienable right to these things, which, of course, the state must fulfill. So that's all kind of out of that humanitarian ethic. If, I, if I'm hearing you right rather than a Christian ethic that says really you don't have a right to anything I mean is that what you're saying you don't have a right to anything but out of God's love we're going to provide something here is that right and, and Christian charity
1: assumes private property that we, we owe this because we show them the love of God and that we are giving them of ourselves and we are giving of our own efforts and our own um, property wealth to help others whereas humanitarian aid and its consequence state aid
3: assumes that men have a right to what you have so a that model rather than John Upton going and giving of himself in Romania for six weeks we and pouring out his life which is a Christian model we just rely on the State Department to throw some dollars of our tax dollars into the government over there it, mm-hmm. So it's the full government foreign aid model versus go and do something yourself.
2: Well, Bo- Boaz was a good example. Parker called him a forerunner of a type of Christ. And he was a, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but a goel, mm-hmm. who was a, a deliverer and a redeemer.
0: A kinsman and a redeemer.
2: And the, the whole concept there is, is that you deliver people from their their need but you don't live their life for them. And the status welfare wants to control and coerce and keep, keep them slaves by keeping them in need. And we believe in delivering <coughs> people out of need and then um, uh, re, you know redeeming them and or restoring them to a productive place in life, whatever that productive place or capacity is. Well, that lack of Christian charity
3: has, in fact, led to, well, you're saying, statism and taking over responsibility for people's lives, which means it really leads to slavery because we've okay. enslaved or enfeebled generations now of, of uh, people. And I, I just read somewhere, I don't recall where it was, but that, um, it, John, it's just what you said, that the government is in the job of selling us on the idea that they are responsible for us and that we uh, are not competent to be responsible for ourselves, because mm-hmm. that's what keeps politicians in power: is the
2: redistribution of wealth. Otherwise, mm-hmm. they'd have no job. Well, the first time I even thought about charity is after I read your book, um, Samaritan Strategy, which is available from me for 9.95 right. discount for uh, Russia's my, readers. I still get my commission for that, right? Well, it depends how this interview turns oh, out. Okay, but but what I was what struck me was that the. Um, we were just talking, evangelicals were just talking a lot, and not doing much. How did you come to the point where you were uh, thinking in terms of serving others? Because that was a big shift from what you had done in the past. Right. Um, well, and let me talk about my,
3: uh, uh, um, my my lack, first of all, let me talk about why I did not feel that I needed as a Christian to be, to be very charitable um, in a Christian sense. Is that you know? I was raised. Um, <laughs> some people say I was never raised, but I was raised as, in a fundamentalist home where we were taught to take um, the in uh, the Bible very literally, of course. And I spent several decades in the fundamentalist movement, and yet I, I look back and say, isn't it interesting that we who were taught to take everything so literally had no teaching whatsoever on doing. The good works. So God's great command, Christ's great command to love God, and then secondly to love your neighbor, we were never taught that. Uh, in, In Luke 10 where Christ is asked what is the key to eternal life, and he talks about loving your neighbor, and then he illustrates what that means by the parable of the good Samaritan of helping those in need, we were never taught that you know the book of James faith without works is dead and what kind of works might that be going to Matthew 25 and find that it's you know helping those in need we never got taught any of that and so there came a point in my um, in my life John where I started asking well uh, you know why why haven't we been taught And actually I just began reading my New Testament I remember where I was up in Mendocino and I'd taken some time out just to be with the Lord. And I was, as I was going through my New Testament, all the verses on love and service just started popping out at me. And it was like I had never read them before. Because, of course, they'd never been emphasized or they'd never been taught. And then I realized that as a Christian, I was a, a complete hypocrite. Because uh, for years, I'd been going to church. And I didn't care anything about other people. I didn't care anything about people you know that might be hurting in the very neighborhood the church was in it was I realized that myself and my other church members were there because what could we get out of it for me Um, it was a for me experience not I did not go there to learn how I could help others and uh, since and when I started studying it and looking into it I realized that evangelicalism has has really turned Christianity, as I understand it, uh, upside down. Uh, our, our because of Pietism's influence, and I, I spent several decades as a good Pietist, is everything is inward, so it's building me up spiritually, uh, rather than uh, rather than following Christ's model, which Catholic Church has done a much better job of in recent years than than evangelicals have which is a, you know, ought to put everybody uh, to shame. Um, so to answer your question, John, when I, I just started reading the New Testament and when it popped out at me, uh, I decided to, uh, to reverse course. Uh, I wrote that book, The Samaritan Strategy, and if nothing else, that writing the book probably forced me to actually do something about it. As a matter of fact, uh, Bob Mumford, who some of our listeners will recognize his name, the national Bible teacher said, well, Colonel, you've written the Samaritan strategy. My question for you now is, are you going to live it? Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, but also I did it because I wanted to. I wanted, I wanted to help people. And even today, unfortunately, you know, when you head a ministry, you get, start getting buried in all the administrative responsibilities. And, uh, I find myself in that position too frequently. And my innermost um, desire, and even this last week as I've been uh, vacationing and I had time to think about it, is I said, you know, I just want to be on the front lines again. I just want to be working in the orphanage with the kids. Or I, every time I actually read a story of somebody who's actually physically touching somebody like you did in Romania, John, uh or um and I just happen to be reading several other stories. Um and uh even reading um Rush sent me a General Booth's uh story, The Salvation Army. And it it's like, hey, that's where we really need to be, that's where I really need to be, is just, you know, one to one, what can I do for this person in need? I think when when we try to um follow Christ or if we have a heart for following Christ we're going to feel—I uh, don't know if that's the word I want to use—feel, but we're going to have that motivation that that we should be doing something. Now, what I mean, what got you into? Uh, why did? You, what, maybe you've already discussed this on numerous other interviews, but on the other hand, uh, they probably haven't heard it for a while, and it's probably new people. What got you to step on a jet plane to Romania?
2: Well, I—I I started to get. Um, too successful in the film business I could just do one film a year and coast the rest of the year and that's exactly what I did and then um, a friend uh, actually it was Rush, Rush got sick of hearing me complaining about everything and he just said well why don't you go out and do something about something I said Mm -hmm. like what? He said well you're a filmmaker why don't you go give somebody a film so, what do you mean give somebody a film? Nobody gives people films. It's like $150,000. Because, what do you have anything else better to do? And I couldn't answer that question. So, I found a church in southeast San Diego who was um, feeding the, the, the homeless and clothing the uh, people. And they had a crisis pregnancy center and a center for abused women. And uh, I heard about them through Howard Almondson. And Howard uh, uh, had supported this church. So make a long story short, I went down there and started filming the people helping the homeless. But the Hmm. thing that was most striking to me is they lived in trailer parks.
3: Hmm.
2: And they were almost homeless themselves. Hmm. And here I lived in a great big beautiful Hmm. place and I wasn't doing anything for anybody. So that's what kind of convicted me. And then about a year later, the... Romanian thing came on 2020 and I decided that was what I needed yeah. to do but your, um, but I tried out one of your your things I, you wrote in your book that you asked people what you thought that, what they thought of Jerry Falwell and Mother Teresa mm. well, I did the same thing I, I went with a camera crew to um, gay and lesbian uh, center in San Diego and I asked what do you think of uh, Jerry Falwell? He's a pig. He's a you know uh, no good S O B etc. What do you think of Mother Teresa? She's a saint. She's wonderful. And I said, why do you you know they both are very similar in certain ways. And they said, well one has credibility and the other doesn't. And that's what I think this discussion is about credibility. Right.
3: And that's that. Uh, and the point that I made, building on that, John, in the book was that. Uh, even th- that my experience, which was similar to yours that, you, that you're referencing, is uh, I noted that there was, a, um, I guess it was a national pr- um, pro-choice organization, uh, a feminist organization, and they booed down Jerry Falwell when he talked about being against abortion but they listened very respectfully to Mother Teresa. Now, they didn't agree with Mother Teresa. They didn't give her a standing ovation, but they listened respectfully. And the question that I thought about was, why was that? Mm -hmm. And the conclusion that I came to is, because they know that Mother Teresa, because of her works to help people, does care about people. And and that's what you're saying. That gets us a a foot in the door, an audience. People Mm -hmm. will listen to us, if they think we really care about them, if we really care about people, if they think that we've just got an agenda, whether it's a reconstructionist agenda or a Newt Gingrich Republican agenda or you know, a pro life agenda, if they think all we are about is an agenda, then they're not really interested. And, uh, that's when I, that's when I began, actually after I wrote the Samaritan Strategy, (laughs) too bad I had the insight about two years later, I realized that for those of us that are interested in Christian politics, the way to really get into leadership in your community is to serve your community first. And those who serve on, you know, on the, the poor or just make a name for themselves in community service, and there's obviously a thousand ways to do that if you think about it, those are the people that eventually, when they run for office, have the credibility to win. You don't win just because you've read all the books on the issues and you've got the right answers. You win because you've earned people's respect, you've earned a reputation for serving.
2: Mm-hmm. Rush, what was that? You told us about a, uh, a little song that was sung about flies.
0: Oh, yes. Well, General William Booth took his band, Salvation Army band, into the slums of London. And at that time, the slums of London were something the Western world forgets it ever had. They were so bad. People who had no relationship to the law, who lived a life of crime, who lived outside of the law and outside of the church. And he began to work with them, and he was converting people and then retraining them because these were women who had never known anything but prostitution. They had been molested so early they didn't know what it was to be a virgin. Boys who was... uh, small children had been brought up. And Oliver Twist is a true story and it's uh, in reflecting the life of the times. To be pickpockets and thieves. And he realized... I've got to convert them. Then I have to retrain them to live in a law-abiding and godly society. And he had songs that embarrassed the church of the day because they were so outlandish. But he'd take popular ideas and have his army band (laughs) develop a tune for them And one of the sayings of the day to indicate you're really quick and uh, on the job was, there's no flies on him. And so they had a Salvation Army song to attract the attention of the crowd. Oh, there are no flies on Jesus. No flies on Jesus. And there are no flies on me since I've been saved. That's not (laughs) the precise wording after the first two lines, but that was the gist of it. Of course, the churchmen were horrified, but the slum people stopped and listened to those songs and to the messages and were converted. So that was the way Booth worked. He saw the need and he tailored what he had to do to the need, not to the church.
3: Well, how, how can we, and I know, Roger, this is in your heart to, to do, and I see more and more you doing it through the uh, Kelsey Report, but you know, what can we do, or what can the people listening to our tape do, what, what can we do to provoke um, you know, more of the church or more of our brothers and sisters yes. to good works? How do we get that
0: started? Well, first of all, we set an example. We do it. If we're not able to do it, we support those who do it. And we stress the fact that sin, salvation, and service are all aspects of what Christ does when he impacts the world. He redeems us from sin by his saving power in order to serve. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, That's what our Lord says. Not your own uh, salvation and your own uh, satisfaction, your own pleasure. I recall some years ago an idiot who was always going around trying to evangelize people and talking about the perpetual joy Uh, that uh, the Lord gave him. And he was quick to tell others, including me, that we could not be real Christians because we were not bubbling over with joy all the time. (laughs) And it was only after some time that I came to realize, now wait a minute, how about St. Paul? Look at all the times he was beaten. He was not bubbling over about that.
1: Mm
0: -mm. Stoned, dragged out for dead, abused by any number of people. And uh, I thought, there's something wrong with the idea of Christianity that this man has because it doesn't jibe with the Bible, Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. What did he have to take joy in? He had a miserable life the minute God called him. Well, there's so so much
3: hurt and pain in the world. Yes, I mean, I I always said, never trust a man who's always smiling. (laughs) And you know me, I love a sense of humor, but when we have that smile perpetually
0: pasted, it just
3: says that you're living in fantasy land.
0: Well, it affected me because uh, I was having my picture taken for graduation and then uh, at seminary and so on and so forth and then a publicity shot because I wrote an article for a national periodical in the late 40s. And the cameraman would say, Now smile. And uh, it had (laughs) set my teeth on edge. It had set my teeth Mm -hmm. on edge. So Mm -hmm. in recent years, Dorothy warns the cameraman, don't tell him to smile (laughs) because that's not the way he wants to confront the world. I feel I'm a happy man because I'm doing God's work. Not because the world is a happy place. Yeah. I'd like to go back to something that was touched on earlier by the three of you. Mark started it with his reference to foot washing. Oh. By the way, that was a ritual in the Middle Ages. They'd bring some people, and I suspect, because I know this was true later on, with their feet very carefully washed, very poor people, you know, and the king, when with a great show of humility, would wash the feet of all these men now uh, it was a good reminder to the king of his place and his duty to serve the people, but uh, it was reduced to a ritual, mm-hmm. and there are churches still that have ritual foot washing, but in the second volume of Institutes of Biblical Law, the first section, maybe a hundred pages, I don't remember. I haven't looked at it since I wrote it. I dealt with the meaning of communion and pointed out that the whole meaning of communion was that it should lead to community in Christ. Hmm. And all that it involves of the Diaconal ministries of charitable, of Christian charitable activity. So that, as our Lord says elsewhere, uh, that we have freely received, freely we must give. So, we have forgotten the meaning of things and
2: reduced them to ritual only. So you're saying that communion to a lot of people as a ritual that, yes. that makes them feel like they're partaking in the body of Christ but then they yes. go home and mm-hmm. shut themselves off.
0: At every communion service there is an offering taken for the work of deacons. And that's become just a ritual. Nothing in the way of recognition. Communion is supposed to lead lead to community. We are to expand the community of Christ, both by bringing them in and by ministering to their needs.
2: Mark, you serve the community by fighting fires. How long have you been doing that, and what kind of interesting stuff have you seen in your kind of service? Well, I've been doing that for about 11, 12 years. Um,
1: Why? Why do you do it? I just started as a community service. Uh, I heard that there were not very many people on the local fire department, so I joined. Um, I really didn't know what I was doing when I did it, I just thought it might be a good idea. I had no idea that you actually had to know something. I had visions that I would just show up and they would hand me a shovel or something, um, which is what they did in the 40s. Um, And then once I got into it and more and more people started dropping out because there's a problem with a lot of these um, such agencies as firefighting is that the uh, the state starts coming in and taking over these organizations and when the state takes over the organization they start putting sort of training requirements and, and other requirements on that, that turns people off and you have to attend classes for so many hours every so often that actually discourages people. Because when you a lot of people who are interested in becoming let's say a firefighter or um, um, someone on a medical team to get that might get there before the ambulance sometimes twenty minutes before the ambulance in a, in a rural area like this and they find out all the requirements um, that they're subject to uh, they become very discouraged um, it's a it's a good experience and i i've, I've I enjoy it. Uh, there are a lot of other areas where people can
3: can work, though,
2: too. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is that what he said, he didn't know what he was getting into. Particularly uh, after he
3: realized he could easily die as a volunteer. Right, that's the thing.
2: <laughs> but it, it, I, I think that people think too much about it ahead of time. They have no faith, and they try You're to right. organize things for the future when they should just be taking it a step at a time because if you would have told me that the stuff that I would have gone through you know in certain projects I've been involved in ahead of time I would have never gotten involved in it yes
0: foresight in other words yeah that reminds me of one of Mark's uh, experiences in firefighting which also includes a kind of paramedical work too some church group came to uh, have a picnic at uh, Natural Bridges which is uh, just a short ways from here it's in a deep canyon and there are these natural bridges of stone water has carved a hole through them and with A total lack of foresight, this woman of some 250 pounds went down the hill and then found she couldn't take more than two steps trying to get back up some distance. So they had to send for the fire department and uh, they had to carry her up a few steps at a time and switch men on the lower end of that stretcher. (laughs) so Marcus served in ways (laughs) quite varied
3: (laughs) well that just shows you we shouldn't let the calorie challenged uh, beyond certain uh, physical perimeters Uh, that's a good
0: term and a good one
3: I thought you were going to say that she had walked across the arches and there are now no longer any uh, natural arches uh, in that particular canyon but um and that didn't
0: happen. Calorie challenge.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That's. Uh, now, anytime I start putting on weight, I'm going to say I'm calorie challenged.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Or when we Thank make a you. foolish move now, we're simply wisdom challenged. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm reading this book on political correctness. That's where I've got. Actually, they've rewritten some Grimm's fairy tales to be politically correct. Obviously, it's very tongue-in-cheek, <laughs> but uh, everybody is wisdom challenged or if you weigh 500 pounds, you're calorie challenged and so forth and you're so forth.
2: challenged if you're short.
3: Oh.
0: Yeah, exactly right. I have mm. to get up to 500 pounds to be calorie challenged.
2: Yeah, challenge. you're, all you're
3: all right, right? Rush, today, yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, I believe that the modern age, as anyone who's read my writings knows, is drawing to an end. Even some of our modernists are beginning to talk about a postmodern era, mm-hmm. which means they're saying the same old things with a different label. Well, the modern age has been marked by a belief in political salvation, mm. salvation by a humanistic world state order, ultimately. And that dream is dying, and that salvation is proving to be damnation. And we Christians have a very great opportunity. We will not avail ourselves of it unless we begin to apply the faith practically in day-by-day action. Why don't you describe for us, Colonel, some of the areas of activity that you yourself are involved in?
3: Uh, I like to do that, Rush. Um, let me just preface it by by um, saying that as as the modern world does collapse, the the belief in uh, science and government as the answer to all things, and uh, we can see evidence that it's collapsing in the fact that communities no longer have enough tax dollars to provide the services, whether it's for police or AIDS victims or homeless. So what you have now is communities like Orange County, the wealthiest in the country, going uh, bankrupt. Of course, he might have gone bankrupt for some technical reasons, but the headlines are rife with stories of communities no longer having the money to provide social services. This is the chance for us as Christians to begin to step in to offer the love of God um, uh, to the community, and uh, the, the the other thing I'd like to preface with is saying that for 20 years um, I have heard uh, myself say and my colleagues in the Christian right that um, oh isn't it terrible the secular humanists are taking over and they're doing all of these things and of course they've never taken an inch of ground that we haven't ceded to them. We've
0: erased to hand it to them in some cases.
3: In many, many ways, but the only way I'll touch on now, because it's relevant to this this conversation, is that I was shocked about five years ago, six years ago, when I started to see the things, that's when John Upton asked me how I got going on all this. I opened up our daily newspaper in Santa Rosa, California, about a hundred thousand people live there, and it listed, the the paper listed 99 service organizations that helped the poor. I mean, they helped the elderly, they helped the hungry, they helped uh, abused women, uh, they helped uh, uh, children who couldn't read, uh, you know, in, in all sorts of agencies to help people. And I looked at those 99 agencies, and how many of those agencies do you suppose were explicitly Christian? Out of 99, there were three. Two were Roman Catholic service agencies, and another one was a crisis pregnancy counseling center. And as I later would find out, there were very few Christians even involved in the other 90 uh, you know, some-odd uh, organizations that there, there were no Christians involved at any level. So here we have an example. If, if you are a, an average voter, an average person in in a a community, and you ask yourself, who is really interested in my well-being? Who's interested in the community? Well, the answers are clear. Clearly, Christians are not. The church is not. You can see Mm -hmm. it right there. Ninety-nine organizations, you know, only three are Christian. Two of those are Roman Catholic. What does that say about who really gives a rip about the community? So having said that, um uh... it's been my goal to to work toward changing um that um uh... perspective and one of the things i'll talk about if we have time two things that we're doing one in this country and you know one in uh... in uh... Um, in nicaragua um and in this country uh... something that can be easily duplicated in every community uh... in america which is why i want to talk about this for a few few moments um and actually Howard Armson uh, helped us um, as, uh, to do this but in Sonoma County we developed a team to assess um first of all what were the needs in the community and 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 to to um assess who were the providers for those particular needs in other words uh, if, if a person is hungry, they'll go to maybe a center that feeds them, but they'll have other problems. And the people at that particular feeding center, they won't know where to send a person for medical care, or for housing, or for spiritual counseling. Or a person goes to a church for help, and that church doesn't know where to find a plumber for them, or a dentist, or anything else. So what we did is we we found out we took these hundred agencies that were helping people. And we catalogued them and printed a beautiful bound um, manual with about a half page description of what each agency did and many of these most of these were private agencies, some of them were county agencies, and we provided. That manual to not only all of the churches, so that when a hungry family or a homeless family or an out-of-work family or a sick family came to a church, the church now didn't have to make a decision between giving them a hundred dollars or telling them to get lost. The church now could look up in this directory and say, oh, "Okay, you know, here's exactly where you should go." this manual also went to the other hundred agencies because as I said before if it was a feeding agency they had no idea that there was a housing agency loc- located across town or, a, or a, uh, a medical facility so we begin a, um, networking or what would what we call a clearinghouse process um, then the most exciting part uh, of the whole thing was we got three dozen churches signed up uh to survey their members, asking their members what would they do, how much time um would they give and what sort of time would they give in a given week to help a family? In other words, we went to let's say First Presbyterian Church and they have a hundred members, for instance, and maybe they'd get fifteen members to say, Okay, uh I'm a housewife, I can volunteer an hour a week to drive somebody who needs to be driven. Um, or I'm a, I'm a young, you know, college student, I'll volunteer to mow an elderly person's lawn that can't mow their own lawn, or I'm a dentist, or I'm a doctor, or I'm a plumber, or I'm an electrician, or I'm a psychiatrist, whatever, I will volunteer to do certain things. So we got hundreds of people from three dozen churches to volunteer services and time and we computerized all that into a data bank. So. Uh, word quickly spread throughout our county uh, that when you had a problem, you called our clearinghouse. And our clearinghouse, we we looked up and saw, okay, he, uh, this is a family's particular problem, uh, and here's a church that can help them, an agency, or some particular people. And it was a little more complicated than that. I won't go into you know how all that happened, but I will say that. Um, if some of our listeners want to do something like that rather than just starting from the ground up which is basically what we had to do um, is uh, they can write a organization called love incorporated uh... which is actually now part of world vision now world vision kind of took them over which is the big christian agency um located in monrovia uh, california so that's what uh... we that's one of the things that we pioneered uh, or help to pioneer, uh, locally. The other thing that we've done, which you've been very kind, uh, and Joseph McAuliffe to, to, uh, uh, um, report on, uh, almost every year for the last several years, um in the Cal State Report is our work in Nicaragua which um we chose Nicaragua as a small country where we could pilot this program and and then because it's a pilot it could be reproduced in other countries it could even be reproduced very easily here in in America um and what that is that that program very briefly was people are poor they're not able to provide for their families why well because they don't have a job or they don't they can't create a job and what we did is we set up a loan bank, which now has $100,000 in it. And it took us five years to raise that money, $1,000 here and $5,000 there and $500 here. Uh, many of your uh, readers, Rush, uh, uh, contributed to it after they read about it in the magazine. But uh, so what we do is we interview families. To Again, this is in Nicaragua now. So in Nicaragua, for $500, you can start a little restaurant or a fruit stand or a vegetable stand or a butcher shop uh... or uh... uh, you know you can sell ice all you need is a a freezer they don't have those sorts of things down there so, uh, for $500, it's quite easy to start a business. We interview the family, uh, get some work history, we help them set up the business, uh, give them just, yeah I mean, you know, some, some general business counsel, um we give them the loan, and then we work with them every week, discipling them, Um and discipling them in every way, uh, business-wise, um, and, and, of course, discipling them spiritually, also teaching them about stewarding their, their community and their country. And then after six months, they, they pay the loan back. Often they begin paying it back immediately, but we work out a payment program so that within about six months, the business is complete, up and running. They have paid the loan back so that we can now go to another family and in the last we've been doing this i would say on a real active level for about 3 years we've started over um 300 businesses and we're now beginning to get to a level where we'll be starting about 150 to 200 businesses each year some of these businesses employ 10 or 20 people uh our our rate of repayment our our success rate is 97% uh and the interesting thing is the entire country knows about what we're doing and is this has been a tremendous witness for Christ and for the church. The president of the country calls on us. The vice president of Nicaragua recommends families to us. He calls us up and says I've got some families I think you know should get some loans. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the Congress of Nicaragua, the entire Congress, voted to give us uh, a special tax status, and and the point is is that this whole country said, "Hey, here's a group of gringos coming in that really wants to help our people, not by giving them some handouts, not some sort of a welfare system, uh, not by giving them money." but by helping them stand on their own two feet giving them loans giving them some business counsel and and then getting and then taking that money back holding them responsible for it and i personally believe that if we did something like that in our inner cities mm-hmm. in america it could be a real uh, make a real difference
2: mm-hmm. something that we haven't discussed but we should is the impact that charity has on the giver um, I can see a, a big change in, in Colonel and myself, Bef, uh, before I'll venture to say, Colonel, you can correct me if you want, but we were a couple of powerful, predatory beasts. Something
3: now, to me still likes that description. Uh, like what that. is that?
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we would, we, would, we would prey upon people. We would um, instead of praying for people, right, we prayed we, upon them. We, and we were close, but we just had right, it twisted right. a bit. But charity has changed <laughs> the both of us, and charity is something that can make make your life. Um, there's a good friend of mine who's a very um, well-established makeup artist, and she gets no joy from making up movie stars. But every other weekend, she and some of her friends go to an old age home. Hmm. And they go to a woman, uh, who hasn't been visited for a while, and they do her hair and her nails and everything, and, and they feel like a million bucks. And so it's something that, um, you, you can do for, y- for yourself. What did you say about manager? Manager said that if you want to, uh, heal, get healed, from psychological troubles, help somebody, somebody else. else. Help
0: somebody else. Yeah, and
2: I, I think it's it's important to, to keep that in mind that mm-hmm. the, the giver and the recipient mm-hmm. create something. And then, as far as community is concerned, if you have a personal effort, a relationship is formed between the giver and a recipient, mm-hmm. and that's the most important thing. That's what will able that w- that enables people to serve others. If there's a relationship, people, I'm sure that. It's neat for, for you to know that some guy that started a, an ice business now uh, employs his son, and maybe his son went off and started another business, and they had children, and, and in a very direct way, you have made a difference in somebody's life, and, uh, and that's addicting. Uh, you know, when the manager
3: quote about what was that? If you want to, how, how's that help quote? Help yourself,
2: go? help somebody else.
3: Yeah, I I know, I've heard that in many different ways. If you want to get out of your own depression, just go help somebody else. And Mm -hmm. I think we come, become so self-absorbed. And you know, I read about all of these stories where you talk to people, uh, even successful business people or many people retired and they're just old and they're bitter and they're cranky and they're mad at everything and, and you, and they have so much to give yet. So why don't you just go out and help somebody? Or these people that commit suicide with millions of dollars, you know, because they're so unhappy. Well, or, or become drug addicts or alcoholics, another form of suicide. If only they could just go and help somebody. Um, you know, I think they would pull out of that. And someplace in the Bible, I remember running across it, and I made notes but it was years ago on it. But there are verses that talk about the same the same thing that we're saying is that if you want to, you know, be filled, you know, have a, a you know, with with a joy, a good way to do it is is serving uh, other people. And of course, I think we've got to be honest. Sometimes it's nasty to serve other people. You know, they're they're not grateful. Uh, they're, they're vicious. Uh, they you know, we, we run into all sorts of people out there. But, uh, by and large, um, I think the experience is certainly the, one of the most rewarding we could, we could have. Mm-hmm.
1: It's something yeah. I've noticed on, on fire departments that it's probably true of most charitable organizations. If you volunteer to, to help, you don't know anything about what you're supposed to do or how you're supposed to do it. If you volunteer to, to do some work for an organization, uh, they'll probably let you do as much work as you want to, and it won't take very long before you know as much as anybody. And they may let you just run with the whole thing, so mm-hmm. you can you can learn as mu- do as much as you really want to do for most volunteer
3: organizations. Yeah. Okay, I got to jump on this. Can I jump on Surely. what I just said? Because uh, this, th- th- this was my major insight after writing this. After writing the Samaritan strategy, is what Mark just said. Is basically he just said, "Hey, you can take over." Let me put it in political terms. You can take over or become the leader of a volunteer organization just by by volunteering time and being responsible. And what I want to say is that we have so many of our people that want to reconstruct the church and reconstruct America and they, want poli- and they want power to do it. They want authority to do it. Well, the way you get that is by what Mark just said. If you volunteer to do a job, whether it's secretary of the club or president of the firemen's association or the janitor, whatever it is, if you volunteer, you are given responsibility to do it. So now you have responsibility. That's very important. If you will be faithful to your responsibility, you are given authority. To what? To perform that function. So maybe you're the janitor, but then you run for secretary of the club, and then vice president, and president, and once you've been president of a volunteer association for five years, you run for city councilman, and, or whatever. And that's, that's, when I talk about if we want to lead our communities, we earn the right, that's the principle. If you volunteer faithfully and do it competently, you will be given responsibility and the twin of responsibility is authority. You cannot have responsibility unless you are given also authority. And that's the road, in my estimation, to biblical leadership. Mm
0: -hmm. Now, we have only about four minutes left, Colonel. I'd like to have you give the name of your organization, the address, so that if anyone wants to help with a check why they can write to you. And if they forget they can, say, send it to the colonel's organization and send it to us. Great, Rush. Uh, uh, yeah, the cow seat. But either way, but give them the, your address now. All
3: right. So, again, the name is Colonel Donor, Doner, D-O-N-E-R, uh, and our organization is uh, International Church Relief. I'll shorten it up. International Church Relief. Um, and uh, why don't you just add, uh, write it to um, our uh, East Coast office where I'm spending most of my time these days, which is 1701 Copperfield. Copperfield. As in David Copperfield. Right. Circle, Tallahassee. That's a tongue twister. T-A-L-L-A, was it, double H? No, one H. A, double S, double E. So that's T A L L A H. What is it? A S S E E. Uh, you know that's what you get to when living in an Indian reservation. But um, Good Tallahassee. If
2: Swagger didn't have it. he would have gone broke.
3: Yeah, exactly. Florida. <laughs> that's what. Um, <laughs> is What's is that the, box? I asked my wife, "What is our zip code?" Three, two, three, one, two. Oh boy, it's amazing. I, no, I refuse to uh, memorize bureaucratic codes. I don't know my social security. Uh, I, I know my birthday because that wasn't given to me by the government. Um, and if you would like to get a copy of my book, The Samaritan Strategy, um, uh, you know, if you send us a dollar for some stamps, I'll be happy to. Since you're all friends of uh, Dr. Rush, I'll be happy to send you a complimentary copy. I would
0: suggest you send in ten dollars for the book. I don't want to see Colonel Beggard because there are a lot of you listening there who are good readers. (laughs) Well, thank you all for listening and God bless you.